You are listening to the Sun Grove Podcast. For more information, please visit our website at sungrove.org. Continuing our series called Circles, and the beautiful thing about our series called Circles is that we start off with how spiritual growth happens, that God calls us into identity, that you are a son or a daughter of the Most High God, whom he loves, with whom he is well pleased. That's your identity. And then God moves us into formative experiences. And and whether you've been through some of the things in California the last few weeks, whether there are forest fires or there's loss or there's tragedy or there's uh, all sorts of things that are going on, these at times enter our lives and we're not exempt from them. And these are formative experiences. They challenge our faith. They challenge our, our view of God and they grow us in ways that other things cannot. It's where we're tried. It's where we're tested. It's where we're tempted. And then God moves us from those kind of experiences into community that you and I need a brotherhood or a sisterhood around us that we people that we walk through life together with. And Jesus came out of the trial and temptation of the desert where he was tempted by Satan. He comes and he chooses his friends. And then we begin to see Jesus get what we call on mission. This is where things start to take off. But I want to point out that it starts with identity. It starts with formative experiences. It starts with community. And then, then it gets to be about doing. Some of you in this room, you get so frustrated. You're like, we just need to do something. And you want to act so quickly all the time about everything. And sometimes you act and want to respond without having thought about what you're doing. And then you get in and you're like, ah, we should have thought through that a little bit more before we acted so quickly. And you'll notice in the spiritual formation of Christ and subsequently how God forms us spiritually that there's this season of identity, of formation, then the right community, then Jesus got on mission to bring the kingdom of God through his person, that the kingdom of God, as it was done in heaven, is now suddenly going to be done on earth. It's going to happen through the person of Jesus Christ, and it's God become flesh, and we begin to see that now as he gets on mission. And we're looking at how spiritual growth happens. And whenever you and I attach our identity to our formation, then you might think you're a failure. And God's going to say, no, no, he'll bring you back to identity. Whenever you attach your identity to community, that you are who you hang around with, and if that changes, then you don't know who you are. You change locations, you change jobs, people move away, somebody passes away, and you say, I don't know who I am. Well, God will always bring you and I back to identity. And then if you make your identity attached to your mission, you are what you do, then God will usually correct you and me back to identity. No, you are who I say that you are. And I want you to know that God's heart for you and God's heart for me is that you and I grasp the depth of the new identity he's given us in Christ. And that identity, out of that identity, is why we do mission. We don't perform for acceptance, but we perform out of the overflow of our identity. Do you see the difference? It's such a huge, significant difference when you and I begin to serve the Lord However he needs us to serve, doing whatever he needs us to do, the life is not about us, but we begin to serve him out of our identity. It's the overflow of who he said we were. Where in religious work, it's always human performing, trying to get some sort of acceptance by God or to some place like nirvana or heaven or some other place. But that's not the way it works with Jesus. Jesus gives us his identity first. And it's out of the overflow of that that it's our privilege to serve him. A number of years ago, I went to Biola University, and as a young adult, uh, we did some stupid things. Anybody else in here did some stupid things? 
when the frontal lobe was not fully developed, uh, particularly males under 25, we can relate, right? Amen. And we decided one day that we had heard that in, uh, across from our dorm where we were at at Biola University, that there's a wash. Now, it used to be a river. It's like going to Riverside, California. You're like, where's the river? Like, there's, there's no river, right? There's no river in Riverside. It's like there's no elk in Elk Grove. Not real ones, right? When's the last time an elk was actually here? Probably never. But, uh, but right now, I mean, you look and you say it would be like a river going through, but they've made them now cement washes. They're like big, magnificent gutters in Los Angeles. And we heard in one of these big gutters that goes by us, big cement wash, that there was a tunnel that drained things out of La Mirada Park, which was across a major boulevard and about a mile away, that the one tunnel probably goes underneath from where our dorm was and goes all the way up and pops up into the park. And we thought this would be great to investigate. I don't know why we ever thought we'd need to escape our dorm, go through the tunnels and pop up in the middle of the park. But we decided, well, let's go check this out. And of course, we picked the best time of day to do that. And that's night. So it was me and my brother, Donnie, and my uh, college roommate, and uh, his name's Dave as well. And so Dave was uh, working for the LAPD Police Academy. He was going through college and going through the LAPD uh, police training at the same time. And uh, we decided we're going to go in this tunnel. So it's night. And of course, this tunnel is like one of these like seven or eight foot high circular tunnels and little water, you know, just drains down the middle of it. And by the way, I I don't recommend this to anybody. Like this is a bad idea. Like don't do this. Just because I did it does not mean you should do it. Young people in the room who are listening, do you hear what I'm saying? Don't do these kind of things. So anyway, we decided that we would go up this tunnel. And so we're we're going up it. And and at first you don't want to get your shoes wet. So you're kind of walking up it like this. You got your hands out and you got your feet and you're stepping over the water, which is running right down the middle. So you're kind of walking like this and you're going up this tunnel and we wander through and we get to a point where it begins to curve. Now, once we get around that curve, all the ambient light is gone. We can't see because it was nighttime already, but there's, you know, street light and whatever. There's city light, but now we can't see a thing. So we're, we're like almost blind in the dark. And back then we didn't have cell phones with flashlights. So my roommate Dave pulls out this little flashlight and I'm like, oh good, he's got light. So he pulls it out and he turns it on and then he puts this red filter over it. Of course, I didn't know at that time that red makes you not lose your night vision. So I'm wondering what in the world is he putting a red filter on it? Like killed all the light that was shining. And I pretty much just let the zombies know that we're one of them. Right, so I'm like, what is that? Like a red light? You know, so anyway, we're going up and he's like, just keep going, keep going. So I'm in the front, behind me is Donnie and behind the two of us is Dave and he's kind of holding out that flashlight, shining it up ahead of us. So we're wandering and we're going and after a while, we've gone quite a ways. I mean, way, way, way back in there and we've probably gone more than almost a mile, which is a long way in a tunnel. So we're going up in there, but we're listening and by this time we're like, forget it. We're like walking in the water now. You can only walk like this for so far. So we're just walking through the water. We don't care about our shoes. We're just going and you can hear all our footsteps like splash, splash, splash. And so we're walking up the middle of this water and then we decide, man, we've been going for a while. Let's just stop for a minute. So we stop. We're just kind of looking at each other, talking, and, and all of a sudden we hear splash, splash, splash. Splash, splash, splash. And we're looking like, dude, are you stepping? Like, what are you doing? Like, are you pulling my leg? What's happening here? And we look around. We're not moving at all. So we, but we begin to hear like footsteps, like splash, 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 splash. And they're up ahead of us. They're like further in the tunnel than we are. So we're like, what is that? Is it like an animal? Is it like a person? What is it? And, and so we're, we're just not sure. So we walk a little bit and then we're like, we're like, hey. 
And then all of a sudden we hear splash, 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 splash. Like it's coming toward us. And at that point we did abandon ship, right? We turn around and we begin to run out of there. And so we're like, forget it. Like we're not worried anymore about everything's getting wet. And we turn around, we're just bolting out of there. And all of a sudden you hear these footsteps still going behind me. And all of a sudden I was in the front, but because we turned around and running, I'm now in the back. So I'm thinking, like, if something happens, I get taken out first, right? So I'm, like, running, and I'm trying to, like, run up the sidewall and go around my brother, and he's, like, stiff-arming me and won't let me go. And, like, so, like, we're just sprinting out of there, and it's a long way, and we're just, like, you know, you, you hit that moment where you just lose and you panic, and we're just, like, Phew, just running as fast as we can. And as soon as we get out, what happens is, you know, there's big side slopes of this gutter, that these cement gutters, and the hole is in the side, so it's kind of, like, like, pie cut, you know? And so what happens is as soon as we get out, I run across the opposite side and I, I stop on the little side slope there. One brother, Donnie, jumps on one side. My other uh, roommate, Dave, jumps on the other side. And we're like not far from the tunnel because we've been running for our lives, but we decide, let's see what happens. <laughs> not too bright. Like, hey, we got out in the light. We must be safe now. No, you're not right? So we hear all this. We still hear it too. Then it's getting close, like splash, 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 splash. And we're looking and we're seeing like what's going on. And like, you can see like where the light happens and there's a shadow. Do you guys want to know how this story ends? Oh, oh, you're entitled. We have a problem with entitlement. I'll get back to that story in just a little bit. If you're taking notes today, entitlement says, I deserve. I deserve to know what happens next, Dave, right? I deserve. And on your outline, you've got some different things that just might spark. You say, what do you mean I deserve? And, and, and these are the kind of statements that you and I make inside our heart when we think that we're entitled. They slip out of our mouth. We can't contain them. Even if you put your hands over your mouth, sometimes you don't know. When you begin to get off mission, you become very entitled in our culture right now. We expect everybody and everything else to provide for us, to rescue us. We think we should be able to outsource everything to everyone else. Would someone else please parent our children? Would someone else please provide for me? Would someone else please? And we begin to think that the man deserves to give it to us, and we begin to use God in the consumer mentality. And what that means is we begin to use God to accomplish not his mission, but our mission, our little, tiny, temporary, short-term, self-serving mission. We begin to use God. And so we say things like, I deserve. And it shows up all the time. You think, I deserve to get a full night's sleep. And when that doesn't happen, then we resort to medication that would help us get a full night's sleep. We say, I deserve for something else to help me or heal me. And we, we begin to just say, I deserve. I deserve a raise. I deserve this. I deserve that. You owe me is another way of saying, I deserve. You owe me this. You owe me that. You are obligated to get to me. And when a couple gets involved in saying, you owe me, you owe me, and I deserve and I deserve, nobody's happy. And your joy begins to plummet. And your life experience begins to decrease. And it gets worse when you and I go on Instagram and everywhere else and you begin to compare your life to everybody else's snapshots of their life. On social media and you begin to think like, oh, it looks like their life is so great, but my life is so ordinary and normal. We forget that we have the tensions of life. All the while, you say, I deserve, I deserve. And your joy dries up. 
you might find this, that the more I focus on me, the more unhappy I'll be. The more I focus on me, the more unhappy I'll be. As we head into the holidays, it's so easy to focus on us. What's your Christmas wish list? What are you doing for the holidays? What do you want things to look like this year? And you begin to say, I deserve. I deserve for my family to be reunited. I deserve for these things that are you know, troublesome in my family to be laid aside. And can we just all get along? And, and I deserve for this kind of present. Or I deserve for people to love me like I love me. And in reality, we're just saying, I just want everybody to love me like I love me because... I deserve love. And the reality is, our joy dries up. The more I focus on me, the more unhappy I'll be. Jesus comes to challenge the expectations and the entitlement of the Jewish people. So Jesus has gone through identity and formation and community, and now he gets on mission, and he goes to his hometown. He goes to the place where he grew up. He goes to the people who knew him when he was a little child. The people who knew him and watched him grow an apprentice as a carpenter under his dad. And he goes back home and he's in church. And he goes to church in Luke chapter 4. If you have your Bible, open to Luke chapter 4. Jesus went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue as was his custom. I want to just point out. Did Jesus go to church? What was his custom? Jesus, the head of the church, guess what he did? He went to church all the time. Don't miss that. Because people try to differentiate in this day and age. Well, I love Jesus, but I kind of hate his bride. And I'm going to say, if you're here today and you're part of the bride of Christ, the church, the local body of believers, and you are here today, you're doing great. You're following Jesus. It was the custom of Jesus. But people who try to differentiate the two of that may find that they never knew Christ in the first place. He went into the synagogue, as was his custom, and he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, quote, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, he gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And Jesus says this statement. As he sits down in front of them, he says to Satan, this, what I just read, this Old Testament scripture has been fulfilled right here, right now, today, in church. That's what he says. It's a perfect passive indicative, which means that it speaks. Jesus is saying, I am speaking that the Old Testament fulfillment from the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 61 has now come to fruition that the kingdom of God has come to earth through the Messiah. That's me. Jesus sat down and said that in his hometown, in his home synagogue. He sat down and said that, and the people were unfazed. They didn't even catch it. It was a shocking statement. Could you imagine if I read one of the prophecies that was to happen in the future, like in Revelation, and I just said, well, actually, that prophecy has been fulfilled right here, right now in church today. Yeah, you might think I'm a little crazy. But that's what Jesus did. 
and that was truth about Jesus as he began to launch his ministry. So in verse 22, Luke chapter 4, it says this, all spoke well of him, and they were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked? Like they were so familiar with Jesus, they couldn't honestly like hear what he was saying. He was a, a prophet in his own hometown, a prophet in his own church. He was so familiar that they couldn't get beyond his humanity to see his deity. Here's the problem. Familiarity at times breeds contempt. And what it means for these people is that they were, there was no special place in their hearts for Jesus he was just familiar. He was just regular. They couldn't fathom that God would become flesh, let alone be someone they might know and live among them. In their minds, they had no room, no special place, no esteem for Jesus, so he gets right to the point. Luke 4, 23, Jesus said to them, surely you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself, and you will tell me, do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. I mean, here's what they're saying. Oh, it's Jesus. That's great. But all they want in church today is a miracle. All they want is a miracle. They're like, we've, Jesus, you grew up here, but you haven't done any real miracles here as far as we can really remember in our near memory. But we've heard you've done them in Capernaum, so maybe you'll do one here in church today. And so Jesus says to them, physician, heal yourself, and says, do here in your hometown what we've heard you did in Capernaum. And all of a sudden, they're all ears. When he said, this has been fulfilled, this Old Testament prophecy has been fulfilled in your hearing, they're like, over their head. But as soon as he says, hey, you're going to say to me, do a miracle, they're like, I'm all, like, they're pulling out their cell phones, they're like leaning forward in anticipation, like, what's he going to do? Who's he going to heal? What's going to happen? Jesus is going to do something amazing. In Luke 4, verse 24, Jesus says, truly, I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you, there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, in other words, not to the Jewish ladies, the Jewish widows, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. In other words, Elijah was sent to a foreigner. Not to the Jewish people, not to the chosen people of God, but to a foreign widow. And he says, there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha, the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman, the Syrian. So here's a foreigner, a guy from Syria. He was healed of leprosy with a Jewish prophet. He did a miracle, but he did it for the one outside of Israel, a Gentile. And Jesus begins to point out these two areas. In other words, he's saying, I'm not doing a miracle for you. Jesus is saying that God's forgiveness is for all nations, not just the Jewish people who felt entitled by race and religious effort and relational familiarity. They were ready for a miracle. God, you des we deserve for you to do a miracle for us because this is your hometown. We deserve for you to show up and do something great. Well, he says, I'm not gonna do it. In fact, he said, God did some things, and here's two illustrations where the grace of God was revealed to people outside of his people in Israel. And they get mad. Look at verse 28 of Luke chapter 4. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. And they got up, and they drove him out of the town, and they took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. 
Picture this for a moment. They're ready for a miracle. They say, we deserve a miracle. Jesus says, I'm not giving you a miracle. And they get so angry, they're like, we're going to kill you. You just proclaimed, in a sense, like you're God, that you were the kingdom of God come to earth. We're going to grab you. We're going to take you up. We're going to throw you off. And they're very expressive people, and they're very sharp, elbowed, bump into each other kind of people. And they grab them, and a mob mentality ensues. And they take them up on the cliff, and they're going to throw them off the cliff. Jesus, we're going to kill you. You're our homeboy, but you haven't done anything in our hometown. And we're going to kill you now. And we want a miracle. And Jesus is like, I'll show you a miracle. It's called the disappearing act. (laughs) And let me tell you, Jesus, who has no problem walking on water or walking through walls, has no problem walking through a crowd. By the way, do you think Jesus could have escaped when the soldiers came to arrest and crucify him? Yes. If he could escape a Jewish mob without any political oversight, he could easily have escaped those soldiers. But he chose not to, to be a suffering servant. But in this situation, Jesus says, the only thing you're gonna see is me walking through you when you wanna kill me. Those expecting God to accomplish their little mission, they end up getting off mission. When you say, I deserve, God, I deserve for you to make me happy. God, I deserve for you to fulfill the broken things in my life in my timeline. Not in your timeline, God, but in my timeline, we begin to get off mission. We begin to say, God, you're there to serve my little mission. And we begin to walk in that way. Studies show that those who grow out of the entitlement complex do three things. So we have an entitlement complex in our generations. We have an entitlement complex in America. And if you want to break entitlement in your life, if you want to get out of an entitlement complex, then there's three things that studies, not religious studies, but studies show that help people break entitlement. Here's what the three things are. First, that they understand their unique creativity. So you got to understand your unique creativity. Second, you got to find a cause worth fighting for. So not only understand your unique creativity, what makes you special, what can you bring to the table, but two, find a cause to attach that to, find a cause worth fighting for. And listen, we have a whole generations of people right now who are trying to find some meaningful cause to fight for, and all we're doing is fighting. We're not fighting for anything good. We're not fighting for any great purpose. We're just fighting to fight. Why? Because we're so far off mission. Because we don't know our purpose. We don't know why God has given us an identity and called us together. We have a whole society right now that just wants to fight to fight because they are without a mission. And third, you gain a worldwide appreciation for all peoples and nations instead of your own little world. So those who break entitlement, they understand their unique creativity, what they bring to the table. Second, they find a cause worth fighting for and they begin to live that out. And third, they begin to grab a worldwide appreciation for all people and nations, not just their little corner of society. That is some of the three things that break in time. Why do we ask people to go on short-term mission trips when you're not ultimately gonna relocate to somewhere like India or the Dominican Republic or Africa? But you go not so much to change the people who are there, but you go to be changed. You're breaking entitlement. You are gaining a worldwide appreciation. You're finding a cause worth living for in the kingdom of God. And you're understanding how God has given you a unique identity and a unique work to do and calling you to get on board with that. 
it breaks entitlement. Number two in your outline, those who resist entitlement go from demanding help to delivering help. They get back on mission. See, people who are on mission, you're on mission for what God wants you to do. You're on mission in your life. You don't have time for lame arguments. You don't have time for gossip and jealousies and picking sides and political issues. You don't have time for that. You basically are saying, I am kingdom-minded, the kingdom of God-minded, and I don't want those things to decrease my joy. I want to do what God has called me to do. I want to fight for that cause, and I want to understand my unique creativity, and I'm going to gain a worldwide appreciation. And your joy comes back. Your joy begins to increase. Unentitled people are always finding ways to live a greater story. See, we can live the story that just serves us. I'm just going to do what I need to do. I'm going to try and earn enough to provide for myself, and I'm going to try to retire, and it's all about me, me, me. And you know what? It is so empty. And God's saying, well, how, about, how about you see your job as funding your calling? So it does provide for your needs, but it enables you to live for a cause that's greater than yourself. How about you get on board with what I've called you to do and the unique things I've called you to do? How about your family see you as a dad or a mom living a better story that you were living for self, but now you're saying, listen, family, we're making some changes. We're doing some things differently, and we're going to live for the kingdom of God, and it's going to have some sacrifices, and it's going to make some changes, but can you imagine the people will impact? Can you imagine living, and all of a sudden your children are going to wake and go, finally, our family's living a better story. We're living on mission. We've been dying for this. If my family doesn't live on mission, I'm going to try to go find a mission. And typically, if you're a young person, that's saying, I'm going to go find a relationship or I'm going to go find an experience, or I'm going to go find a group of people who will accept me and seem to have a mission worth fighting for. So grandparents and parents and soon-to-be parents and future parents live a story worth fighting for, live on mission. Well, what is it that Jesus opened up the scripture to and read? Because we don't understand the mission of Christ unless we look at what he said from the scripture in Isaiah. So if you have your Bible, flip back to Isaiah chapter 61. Isaiah chapter 61 in the Old Testament. The prophet Isaiah is writing some of the most beautiful, I think, one of my favorite passages of scripture. But he says this, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me. Because the Lord, he's speaking about the future Messiah, by the way, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, provide for those who grieve in Zion and to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. Do you realize that those who would grieve, those who would grieve would take ashes and they would put them on their head and let them wipe them on their face. And it would be a public symbol of I'm grieving. And can you see for just a moment this week, ashes. 
Can you see those who would love to trade despair for joy? They'd love to trade loss for life. They'd love to say, in the midst of all my hardship, could there be some who would reach toward me? For those who were mourning that they would receive comfort. And let me tell you, you didn't have to have your home burned down to need any of these things. There are those of us in this room who are mourners. There are those of us in this room who are in despair. There are those of us in this room who our joy is dried up and it's gone. And God wants to reach to you. In verse 10 of Isaiah 61, he says this, I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God. What's the response of those who are on mission? My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness as a bridegroom adorns her his head like a priest and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the soil makes the sprout come up and the garden causes seeds to grow, so the sovereign Lord will make righteousness and praise spring up before all nations. It's a picture of desolation. It's a picture of things being wiped out, of despair, of ashes. And he's saying the spirit of the living God will cause from the ashes, will cause not the phoenix to rise, but will cause from the ashes new sprouts, new life, new growth, joy and gladness and righteousness and praise to God for who he is and for what he's done. And that praise will go up before all nations. Number three on your outline, those who go from I deserve to I serve find that their joy increases. So if you go from I deserve to I serve, by the way, look at the word deserve. It's got the word serve in there, but it's got that D-E on the front. It's almost the opposite of it. So when you say I deserve, you're saying I, I'm basically going to refuse to serve. I don't serve. I deserve. Do you see how entitlement rears its ugly head? And yet, if you go from I deserve to I serve, I find that my joy increases. Rick Warren said this, people think happiness comes from getting everything they want. Happiness comes from self-sacrifice. The scriptures say it's greater to give than to receive. Now, we like to receive but there's something in our soul that breeds joy more than receiving. It's giving. It's giving to something greater than ourselves. It's honoring God. Listen, in the tunnel, I feared for my life, and I'm not kidding about that. Like, I, we were running in fear of our lives. Do you want to know what happened? Yeah, you're still entitled. <laughs> in Hebrews chapter 2, Paul writes this in verse 14 and 15. Since the children have flesh and blood, speaking of Jesus, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. What is he saying was part of the mission of the suffering servant of Jesus, God become flesh, is that in his humanity, he would sacrifice himself. Happiness is not found in getting everything you want. Happiness is found in sacrificing. And Jesus gave his life for you and for me. So why? So we didn't have to fear death anymore. This week, I was in the hospital visiting a friend. And his condition's terminal. And his time is short. And he says, I don't fear death. He says, I, I fear like the suffering 
that probably has to happen in his health condition, but I don't fear death itself. Like, it's, it's non-existent. He knows that absent from the body is present with the Lord. He's free from the fear of death. That's why Jesus came. He sacrificed himself for a greater cause, to save you and me, to wash our sins away. Jesus rejected entitlement to stretch out his hands and to accomplish God's mission and take instead not what he deserved, but rather our sin upon himself. He took what we deserve upon himself on the cross. And on the cross, he accomplished life and he rose from the dead of the grave, conquering it and proving to us that there is life after death so we don't have to fear it. Do you realize that the temptation of entitlement comes from the devil himself? You say, I don't know. I've never seen the devil. I don't know what's going on with that. Like, right? Well, you don't need to see the devil because the devil wants to whisper to your thoughts and your mind and your heart the things that are in your thoughts and your mind and your heart that you think are just your own. But you want to know how it's from the devil and not from God? Because the devil is going to give you the straight message of entitlement. The message of entitlement is you shall be like God. Right? That everybody deserves to give you something. You're entitled to what everybody else could offer and life can offer and everything, and you don't serve. You, you, you want to be like entitled, like what you think you deserve. And so the whisper of the devil to Adam and Eve in the garden is, if you fail this temptation, then your eyes will be opened. You will be like God. What did Satan want when he was in heaven? He wanted to be like God. He knew he couldn't be God, but oh, it didn't stop him from rebelling against God and wanting to be like God, and it's what got him cast out of heaven. And so he comes to you and me, those that he knows eventually are perishing, that our condition is terminal. And he says, why don't you live your life for yourself and get you off mission and let your joy dry up and live a weak story instead of living on mission and serving and loving in this temporary life to gain what is forever held in heaven for you. Do you see the difference? All he's doing is saying, listen, the more entitled you get, the more that I'm going to tempt you that you should be like God. Well, those expecting a mission, or those expecting God to accomplish their mission, get off mission. Well, in the tunnel, we did. We felt, we've uh, fleed for our lives. We were so afraid, and we were running out of there. So we come running out of the tunnel, and like I go across on the far bank. My brother jumps on one side. Dave jumps on the other, and we're all like looking at each other and waiting, and we hear these footsteps coming, splash, 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 and they come all the way up, and the light's just shining just partway in the tunnel, and the light shines, and all of a sudden, we see these canvas converse sneakers, and the light goes like this. It kind of goes down, and we can see from like the knee down, and they stop right there in the gutter, but it's too dark. We can't see who's in there. We can't see whose feet they are. We can't see what they look like. All we see are these feet. And you know what? To this day, I still have no idea who that is. I don't know. You say, that's a horrible story, Dave. That's the worst way ever. Like, there's no closure to it. Well, you think that's bad for you. Picture it being bad for me. Like, since college, I still have no idea who was chasing us out of that tunnel. I have no idea if it was a friend or a crazy person. Or, I have no idea. All I saw were black and white canvas converse sneakers on feet. That was it. We didn't know. 
But isn't it funny how you and I have a problem with entitlement? We see only part of the mission, but we serve by doing our part. Let me give you some practical ways to break entitlement and increase your joy in your life. Take a break from your social networking, if that's been one that's been catching you, because it's the comparison trap. Some of you are locked in the comparison trap, and you are now projecting that comparison trap on the people around you. And you're saying, I deserve, because you're comparing all the time. Second, get your hands dirty. Volunteer, serve, find your unique creativity, and use it to serve the kingdom of God, the kingdom that will never perish, never spoil, never fade. In your temporary time on earth, begin to get your hands dirty. You say, I don't know what I'm great at. I don't know what, we'll just start doing and figure it out. And if you're not great at one thing, we'll help you get on board to find out your unique giftness and creativity and help you serve in the kingdom of God. Another one is sacrifice something for yourself and give instead. My giving, or let's be honest, a lack of giving shows the condition of our heart. So your giving or a lack of it will show the condition of your heart. And even in our giving... That just shows whether we're willing to serve or whether we say, no, no, I deserve. And we say, I only see the impossible narrow way of what I'm able to accomplish instead of seeing that there's a God who will do more with your generosity than you can do with having all 100% of your income on your own. And to reach people no one's reaching, you gotta do things that no one's doing. Maybe you begin to dream to say, God, what is my unique creativity? Who are the people I'm bumping into? God, who are the people that you might call me to do something out of my comfort zone and reach out to, to get on mission? And maybe I could see it this time next year, someone taking a partial step of faith because I got less focused on me and more focused on those who don't know Jesus. Drinking these truths, God will comfort all who mourn Are there any mourners here today? God will provide for those who grieve. Is anyone grieving here today? He'll bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, and the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. Is there anyone in here today who walked in in despair or has been battling despair this week? They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. Are there any oaks in here? People have been changed by the power of the living God who display his splendor as they serve and get on mission for his kingdom. Are there any oaks here today? Maybe today you realize you need to change mission, a changed life, a better story for increased joy. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, just simply considering your own life, maybe today for the first time you're realizing I've never asked Jesus to be my Lord and Savior. I've never received him. I've never asked him to wash away my sins. And I need to do that because I just didn't understand that the way he served me was sacrificing his righteous self, taking my sin upon him and giving his righteousness to me. And all you gotta do to receive that, it's a free gift, is to invite him to have relationship with you that you trust what he did on the cross, that that can wash away your sins. And then you get on mission for a greater story than yourself. If that's you today, right where you're seated, you pray a prayer like this after me to say, Jesus, today I give you me. 
I don't come perfect, I come messy. And I ask you to forgive all my sin. Would you wash me as white as snow? I believe that you died on the cross for me, that you were buried and you've come to new life. I believe that you are God. And I ask you to come into my heart and make me a new creation. Because today, Jesus, I give you me. Thank you for listening to the Sun Grove Podcast. For information on Sun Grove Church, visit our website at sungrove.org.